0: As a multi-generational South Carolinian, or what we call in the state a sand lapper, I I kind of consider myself something of an ambassador of South Carolina and things Southern in general, which those of you who've moved from the North knows that it actually can be a little bit irritating at times. Uh, but uh, one of the things I just want to point out about our, our traditions here in the state, we also have some fashion traditions. And uh, the fashion tradition for this time of year is, uh, you know, answers the question, when can I start wearing white shoes? When can I start wearing pastels? When can I start wearing spring colors? Well, the answer to that question in South Carolina is either Easter or the Carolina Cup, whichever comes first. And that's just been the way it's been for well, since, the, since the advent of the, the Carolina Cup. What is the Carolina Cup? The Carolina Cup is a steeple chase horse race in Camden, South Carolina. Camden, South Carolina was a northern resort town. Lots of northerners would come down during the winter and ride their horses and go fox hunting and do steeplechase race and and drink whatever they would drink and that kind of thing. Uh, Camden, for instance, even has uh, horse sidewalks. Uh, where, so it's kind of built for the horse. So the Carolina Cup is a very famous steeplechase, uh, but it's also a huge party. Uh, an enormous tailgate event to the point where the unofficial motto of the Carolina Cup is, I never saw a horse. And thinking about that, that is sometimes the, the kind of the motto of a lot of Christians. They see Christianity as a way to keep out of hell, a way to be saved, a way to have their sins forgiven. Those are all good things, and those are all true things, but those are all starting points. The reason why God saves you is to glorify Himself and to have a relationship with you. And once you start down that road, if you don't forget, if you don't move past the idea that I'm out of hell now, you kind of miss a lot of the point of Christianity. The Apostle Paul prays for the Thessalonian church this morning about what is the point of Christianity. What are we to do once we receive the forgiveness of sins? And he is going to make a prayer that's going to structure and, uh, the, and, and aid the Thessalonians in understanding what the purpose is, but also is going to help us this day. But the Apostle Paul gets his prayer information from the Lord Jesus Christ himself this week. Some 2,000 years ago, the Lord Jesus Christ, on the night that he was going to be betrayed, prayed this from John 17. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They are yours and you gave them to me and have, they have kept your word. But now I come to you and these things I speak to the world so that they may have joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Paul, understanding this prayer from Jesus Christ, also offers up a prayer for the Thessalonians that we will benefit from. And we can go to school on the Apostle Paul's prayer this morning, on this Palm Sunday, because the Apostle Paul went to school on the Lord Jesus Christ's prayer. Let's go to the Lord in prayer now. Father, we do come to you, Lord, recognizing the sinfulness of our own nature. It makes it difficult sometimes for us to listen to the word of God And it certainly makes it difficult for us to obey the Lord, God. But we come before you with a recognition of the grace that we're under. And that grace, in a sense, has expectations. Out of a heart of love for you and out of gratitude, we are to walk in a manner that's worthy of our calling. Would you help us to be challenged in doing that today? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you would turn to Second Thessalonians, we can be looking at uh, verses uh, chapter one, verses ten through eleven this morning. You might find your home group helps insert of benefit to you. We're going to break down these uh, two verses into three headings: the report of the prayer in verses eleven a, uh, the request of the prayer in verse eleven b through c, and then the reason for the prayer. In verse 12, let me read the verse in its entirety and then we'll uh, look at what the Lord might show us through his Holy Spirit this morning. Second uh, Thessalonians 1, 10 through 11, God says, the Apostle Paul writes, To this end also we pray for you always that our God may count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power in order that the name of our Lord Jesus might be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So first first of all, we look at here, this report of prayer, and we have something of a transition sense here. He says here in verse 11, to this end also we pray for you, always here. Uh, to this end is the English translation. It's also rendered uh, onto this or wherefore in view of this uh, or with this in mind. It connects to the previous points made. Uh, the previous points uh, relating to two ways that God is uh, performing his judgments. He is allowing the Thessalonians to go through suffering because that is validating the fact that they are genuine Christians, so his judgment is in a positive sense there. And then he is also reminding the Thessalonians that those who do not know God and that those who, uh, who are even persecuting them will suffer the wrath of God in a negative judgment from that standpoint. We just finished last Lord's Day with these verses, uh, verses 9 through 10. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day, and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you is believed. So he he closes that section with the idea that we are his saints, holy ones, those set apart for his work. It doesn't take an official decision of the church to make you a saint. If you are born again, you are a saint. If you have the Holy Spirit within you, you are a saint. So what are the saints to be doing? Well, they're to be glorifying God. That's our position. That's our calling in life is to glorify God. So, so how do we do that? Well, that's what he, Paul's saying. He's saying that they will fulfill this glorifying uh, in, in these ways. So he says here that he's praying for them. He directs the Thessalonians, the importance of prayer and how often he prays for them, which is always... Uh, But what you're going to see in this particular prayer as we look at these few uh, uh, brief verses here is that Paul's prayers are not, in some ways, don't sound like our prayers. They don't sound like the prayers that we so often offer up uh, to the Lord here. John MacArthur is worth quoting at length here. Christians can pray for the wrong things. Their prayers are too often shallow, short-sighted, misdirected, and frankly selfish. That sounds like John MacArthur, doesn't it? (laughs) They pray for health, wealth, happiness, comfort, success, a house, a job, a wife, a husband, a promotion, or a raise. While these things are not necessarily wrong, they were not high on either Jesus's or Paul's priority list. The problem of praying for the wrong things is compounding with the believers pray for the wrong reason. James warned that you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasures the essence of prayer is not demanding things from God but listening to discern his will the deeper believers prayer lives become the more line up they line up with God's will as revealed in scripture the less inclined they are to ask for trivial things as they learn to desire what he desires love what he loves and hate what he hates they pray our father who art in heaven Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This week, some 2,000 years ago, Jesus modeled this very principle himself. And as he's praying in the garden of Gethsemane, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch over me. And he went on a little bit further from them and fell on his face and prayed saying, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will but as you will. God's agenda was Jesus's agenda. And he was about to go through separation from God, public humiliation that we cannot even imagine, and excruciating pain. But God's agenda was Jesus's agenda. That's where you want to be in your prayer life. So Paul starts off with this reminding them of the fact that they need to be glorifying God. And then you see the request of the prayer that our God may count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness in the work of faith with power. So you see here, several aspects here. First of all, that he's praying that our God may count you worthy of your calling. Uh, That is sometimes translated, deem you worthy or to make you worthy, which I think is the ESV, which we used in the earlier, uh, the the assurance of pardon here. So, but either one are appropriate, because the God who makes you worthy also counts you worthy. It all comes from his grace here. And the, text, the text picks back from the statement made back in verse 1-5. This is plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. Christianity is worth giving up everything. Worship of God, glorifying God is worth giving up everything. And the Thessalonians were learning that lesson to a certain degree in, in a hard way. And it had God's seal of approval on it. Paul regularly puts the relationship of calling, uh, uh, a relationship to God in terms of calling here. Uh, And uh, he loves that principle that we are called. Again, because Paul is consumed with the idea of giving God glory, not man. You don't choose God. God chooses you. Jesus himself said that in John chapter 6. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up. On the last day, the apostle Paul reminds Timothy in second Timothy one nine of this great truth. He God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace with which uh, uh, he has granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. It's God's calling that's allowed you to be here today that allows you to understand the Scriptures because God's given you the Holy Spirit. It's all His doing. You do need to respond to that, but it starts with Him. He is the great uh, protagonist. Um, Paul does not say that we make ourselves worthy, but that God has made us worthy of His calling. You, know, uh, you, you see this principle uh, uh, where, where God, God is given the credit for not only our salvation, but also our sanctification. And yet, also, there's a balance there, isn't it? There's also human responsibility, and you see those two tensions all throughout Scripture. Uh, Paul says elsewhere in Philippians chapter two, "You are to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who's work within you, both to will and to work, is pleasure." So, which one is it? Do I work it out, or is God working in with me? And the answer is yes. <laughs> it's both. Quite frankly, you wouldn't even have the desire to work out your salvation if God wasn't working that salvation in you already. John uh, gives us some expectations for the, for the Christian in 1 John 2, 6. The one who says he abides in him ought also to walk in the same manner as he walked. You know, one of the, one of the frustrations with uh, Christian liberalism is they basically reduce Jesus Christ to just an example. A great, a great moral man, a great rabbi, a great teacher, and, and that we should follow in his steps and we should ask ourselves the question, what would Jesus do? That is true. He was a great example, but the problem with liberalism, it stops right there. He's just, he's also Lord. He is also king of the universe. He is also the redeemer of mankind. He's also fully human. He's fully God. And yes, he's also an example, but we are to be following in his steps uh, and look at the way uh, he walked. And and, and if you're a Christian, that's what you want to do. Now, if you're a Christian, you also fail all the time, right? But if you're a Christian, that's really your heart's desire, your great burden. That's one reason, one way that you can tell whether or not you're a Christian or not. Charles uh, Haddon Spurgeon, the greatest of all Baptist ministers, said this, We must give ourselves holy to holy things. Give ourselves holy to holy things. The second request here is is to fulfill every desire for goodness. This this idea of goodness that drives Thessalonians' uh, desire, and it should be driving our desires. The good desires lead us to good works uh, that God even prepares for us. And that's interesting. In a sense, you don't have to go hunting for good works because God has already prepared some before you. For you to be able to walk in them, Ephesians chapter two says this: We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now it's interesting. God prepared uh, the good works for you being here today, but you had to drive here, right? God prepared uh, the good works for you, perhaps to 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 uh, to tithe, but you had to write the check or you had to use the QR code or whatever young people do these days. <laughs> You had to do that, so there's this cooperative arrangement that you see these tensions between God doing it, but you also have to follow through. But remember now, this epistle is related to the return of Christ. That's our theme, is living in the light of Christ's return. So Paul, in a sense, is answering the question that Peter asks in 2 Peter 3. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements and be destroyed with intense heat. And the earth and all its works will be burned up. In other words, Christ is coming back in judgment. And then he asked this question, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you be in holy conduct and godliness? If you think I have been called to be an engineer, you recognize the fact that there's a lot of things that have to happen before you become an engineer. You've got to study, you've got to understand principles, you've got to be good at physics, you've got to be good in mathematics, you have to get an engineering degree, then you have to pass your engineering boards, and you have to be a certified engineer, and et cetera, et cetera, then you've got to land a job, and all these other things, right? Folks, Jesus Christ is coming back, he's going to destroy this earth, he's going to recreate po- paradise, and he's going to populate that paradise with us. So if that's what's going to happen, and it is what's going to happen, and it's going to be in every human being's future, what do we do to prepare for that? What do we do to prepare? Well, we are to fulfill every desire for goodness. Uh, you know, here's here's the application. Goodness, goodness, that needs to be a test for everything that you do. Everything you think about, every word that you speak, it's a test for things either lawful or unlawful. There's some lawful things that are just not necessarily good, uh, at least at the time. You need to ask yourself this question. Is this action, thought, statement, whatever, good? Is it clean? Is it the act of someone who is walking in a worthy manner? If not, uh, then you, what's going to happen is you're going to walk right over the good works that God's prepared before you. You're going to be missing out on some of the things that God has prepared for you. There ought to be a cleanness about everything we do, a wholesomeness. Now, y'all, that's what the world just mocks these days. There is no standard for goodness on the Internet anymore. There's no standard for goodness in the world anymore. But, but if for no other reason, that ought to be a reason to reject The filth of pornography, the filth of coarse language, by inappropriate banter, by sloth, by filling your mind with things you shouldn't fill your mind with because they're not good, they're not clean, they're not wholesome. They will not help prepare you for the return of Christ. They're just, you know, when we were raising our kids, we didn't have a moral reason for everything. But sometimes we would just say, Campbell's don't do that. Or Campbell's do do that. And that was good enough. But that's what God is saying to you. My children just don't do that. And they do do these things. They they focus. They have every desire for goodness. And I'll be honest with you, because we're so fleshly, we have to kind of train ourselves in that. But isn't that one of the things that attracted you to Christianity? You saw in other Christians, you saw maybe in the Bible, you saw at church, something that was clean something that was attractive, something that was different from what you see in normal everyday life at the workplace or at college or whatever. You wanted that. That was part of what God used you to, uh, used to prepare you, uh, and that is to give you this desire for goodness. And then, of course, he says to give you this work of faith and with power. Here he picks up on the statement made in verse 1-3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. So both goodness and faith are said to become with power. So you're not on your own there. You are not some kind of Pharisee. They're going to prove how good you are by following all these man-made rules. This is something that comes from within, gives you a power from the Holy Spirit to be able to give you to... It's not only saying no to evil, but yes to good. And, and, and to change your affections. You know, this is one of the problems with legalism. E- legalism is consumed with, with, with not doing this, not doing this, not doing this. But it doesn't fill the void. It doesn't fill the void. But what God does when, when he saves someone, he gives you a new affection. So on the negative, yes, you stop doing this. But on the positive is, I love God. And I love his word. And I love God's people. What do I do? So you can't just keep living by the negatives. You also have to... Uh, fulfill those positives. You have new affections, and this is what, and you see this coming with this faith, uh, in faith and with power. But again, uh, it's a wonder. It's this balance between human responsibility and 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 divine sovereignty here just to make the point here that these things come as a gift from God to us, the Westminster Confession of Faith, when it talks about what is justification, what is sanctification, what is, uh, what is adoption, that kind of thing, uh, it makes sure that God gets the credit for these. Question number, uh, the, the answer to question number 31 uh, starts off with, effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit. Question number 33 answer, justification is an act of God's free grace. Question 34 answer, adoption is is an act of God's free grace. Question number 35. Answer, sanctification is the work of God's free grace. And it goes on, question 35. Whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and enabled more and more to die to sin and to live unto righteousness. So God gives us this goodness, this power, this desire for goodness... And yet, uh, and and he does this in his sovereignty, and yet we are also responsible. So one of the problems with, and this would be uh, the the folks who are considered libertine or anti antinomian within the church, and there are plenty within the evangelical church, is instead of embracing the grace and saying, oh, look at this grace, I want to love you all the more, they say, oh, look at this grace, (laughs) cha-ching, I can get away with everything now because my sins are forgiven. Let me submit to you, that may happen every now and then to a real legitimate Christian. They may be in a bad mood. They may be mad at God. They may be just overwhelmed with temptation. But someone who lives that principle is not a Christian at all because they have no love relationship with God. They just see God as this, uh, as as, uh, uh, it's all about grace. Don't worry about the way you live. That is not scriptural at all. It's not Christian God's sovereignty is not an excuse for your laziness, your disobedience, or your lukewarm attitude. But if you're a believer, and when you're lazy, and you're disobedient, and you're lukewarm, God will forgive you. And that forgiveness should propel you towards more goodness and more faithfulness. James makes this point, James chapter 2. Some may well say, I have faith. I'm sorry, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Faith without works is dead. But this was a problem in Thessalonica. One reason why probably Paul is trying to emphasize this because uh, we saw this in 1 Thessalonians, but it's going to be a continued problem. We will see when we get to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Because you had these people, they were, so, they were so into the return of Christ, they decided not to do anything. And to kind of uh, to, to live on everybody else's good, good favor here. To quit their jobs, to be lazy, and just mooch off the church. Paul goes on to rebuke these folks. If anyone will not work, let him, neither let him eat. For we hear that some of you are leading an undisciplined life, working, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons are commanded and exhorted in the Lord Jesus to work in a quiet fashion to eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. Boy, that's a great prayer, isn't it? God, help me not to grow weary of doing good because it it can can be weary in it sometimes. So there was a problem even in this church here that people that were so, uh, what is it, so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. Oh, Jesus is coming back, so can I stay with you today? And by the way, I got fired from my job because I wouldn't do my work because Jesus is coming back, so I'd like for you to cook me some breakfast. Matter of fact, lunch and supper as well, and you got a bed. (laughs) Long ago, I came across a quote, The enemy of good charity is bad charity. And the church thought, Oh, well, we're supposed to be gracious. We're supposed to be loving. They're our brothers and sisters of Christ. Yes, you can mooch off us for the next several weeks. Now, sometimes that is necessary. But it's basically was was feeding uh, these people's bad doctrine. Gordon Fee says this, speaking of uh, their devotion to goodness and to faith. Gordon Fee says Paul knows no genuine Christian life that has not also to live in such a way as to be worthy of his calling. But the church and its individual members are not left to their own their own devices, as it were. Rather, God has committed Himself to them to empower such a life through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So in terms of application, of the kind of things that Paul is mentioning here, his request, uh, basically, we, we tend to spend most of our time saying, God, change our awkward circumstances. Give us more money, give us more health, give us better relationships, you know, whatever it might be. And that's just simply not the focus of, of Paul. Can you pray for those things? You can. Those are legitimate things God would say, pray for those things. But the emphasis here is God used the hard things in my life to help me to be a better Christian. Help me to walk worthy. It's, it's all about this, this relationship that we have with God. This is the heart of Moses as he wrote Psalm chapter 90 at the end. He says, oh, satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us. In the years we have seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants and your majesty to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. And confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. Isn't that interesting? God's basically saying, if I've got God's loving kindness, I don't really have to have anything else. I can be content in poverty, alone in misery, Job. And yet, if I've got God... That's all I need. And indeed, God will use those difficult things to grow you up in God so you can get to that place. You know, I um, went to a wedding uh, this weekend. and I'm always reminded about God's purposes for marriage. And these are stated in Scripture. Uh, there's, there's three of them. One of them is companionship. Companionship. And that comes from the text in Genesis. It's not good for the man to be alone. Right? We understand that. Not good. So he, God made a, a, a helpmate for, for Adam. When we think of that, we think of it's not good for man to be alone. We think, uh, we think uh, uh, companionship is important. We think, yeah, I want somebody I can go hiking with. I want somebody I can play ultimate Frisbee with. I want somebody where I can go eat really good Italian food with. I want someone who can you know, fill in the blank with. And it goes on. You think this is the way it's going to be to the way, uh, rest of my life. We get to the point, you know, like the Karufis where, you know, I want someone I can wear my zip-up snugly with and watch PBS Masterpiece Theater on the couch with, you know. That's that that is true. Well, that's not true, but the rest of that's true. (laughs) But that's I don't know that's really what God means by that. Because what God's saying, husbands and wives, is I want someone that's going to grow them up because they can't think about themselves all the time. I want to bring someone in their life that will force them to love unselfishly. I want someone who will learn to not lose their temper when they don't get their way all the time. Companionship to God isn't just, he gives you the fun. You get to do the watch Masterpiece Theater together. But really, his real purpose is, is to teach you to die to yourself. That's why it's not good for man to be alone because, you know, we sometimes need that. Now, God can also use friendships, relationships, family and other things like that. So you don't have to be married to experience that. But it's one of the best ways. And if you don't learn that lesson pretty fast, you're kind of unhappy. You're kind of unhappy. Marriage ought to be you serving the other and they serving you. And then that way everybody gets served. But that's very unnatural for us in so many ways. So here's Moses saying, all I need is for you to satisfy me with your loving and kindness. And in the end, to be content, that's really all you need. So as a summary here on uh, this particular passage, this part of it, so that so that we do in this life and what we should pray for in this life should be the ambition of us uh, fulfilling our calling to be worthy. In a manner consistently having desire for goodness and works of faith, and we do this in the power that the Lord Himself provides. The great Puritan John Owen said this He who prays as he ought will endeavor to live as he prays. And James, of course, tells us the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. You need to be a righteous man. You need to be a righteous man. And then we see here the reason for the prayer. And of course, it starts off with an order that, in order that the, time, the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, this uh, is the overarching purpose for all of these prayers. And it's summarized in two different ways that the name of the Lord be glorified in you, and that you in him. So he picks back up from the statement in verse 110 when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day to be marveled at among all who have believed. Uh, a great example of this is uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel uh, in, uh, chapter 3. But if you do not, he's, they're thrown in the fiery furnace because they refuse to bow down to the golden, uh, the golden statue. Interestingly Everybody else bowed down to the golden statue of the king that he, was, he thought he was a god. That probably included a lot of Hebrews. They all bowed down. And there's Shadrach, B, uh, uh, Meshach, and Abednego uh, not bowing down. So they're going to be thrown in the fiery furnace, he says here. But, but uh, if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast in the midst of the fiery furnace, the blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? He regretted saying that. <laughs> They were going to glorify his name. They were going to glorify his name through death. They were going to glorify his name through the rescue. It really didn't matter to them. Isn't that interesting? They didn't say, but we sure do hope he rescues us, <laughs> you know. It, it's fine. They were so content with God himself. It didn't matter if they got burned up. It didn't matter if they lived another 40 years. Wow. Wow. That's glorifying God. And then he says... And that you and him. Now, isn't this interesting? It's not just about glorifying God. Who is being glorified here? The saints, Christians, those who are born again, those who were adopted into the family of God. Uh, as one commentator says, this is a reciprocity of glory. Here, Paul emphasizes that you glorify God and he will glorify you. You see this in Romans chapter 8, right? And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. There's a verse we need to remember. To those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. So that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. These whom he called, he also justified. And what else? And these whom he justified, he also glorified. I love that because it's in the present tense, present tense. So it's hard for us to realize this, um, especially, for instance, when we go to the gym. But we are being glorified right now. We are being glorified right now. I wonder, I wish for five seconds we could see ourselves the way the angels see us. Glowing, magnificent children of the living God. That's happening now. We just can't see it. And sometimes we sort of kind of experience it. But one day we will not need faith. We will see it and we will see each other and we will marvel at that truth. It's amazing. We're all about glorifying God. And yet God is willing to uh, share that glory with his children. The great illustration comes out of World War II. You know, you look at uh, if you're like you know me, you've seen every single World War II documentary on any cable channel 15 times, uh, and so you end up kind of becoming an expert. But one of the one of the kind of the seminal moments of World War II was the surrender of the Japanese on September 2nd, 1945, and it was done on the battleship, the deck of the battleship Missouri, in Tokyo Harbor. And it was done in just magnificence. And it was meant to be a point to the Japanese. The entire fleet was in the harbor. Hundreds of airplanes were flying over so that the Japanese would see. Don't mess with us again. We, we won the war. But there's another part of that that you may not know. And that's this, that Douglas MacArthur, the commander of all the forces in the Pacific, uh, he was the first one to sign the the surrender uh, from Japanese, but he had two people with him. The two people were uh, Jonathan Wainwright. Wainwright, General Wainwright, was in charge of all the forces in the Philippines. Well, eventually, the forces in the Philippines got beat back to the island of Corregidor. They eventually got captured and suffered humiliating malnutrition, terrible defeat at the hands of the Japanese through the Death March of Bataan. Wainwright was eventually uh, freed by the Red Army in Manchukuo, Manchuria. The other person that was with them was Arthur Percival. Arthur Percival was commander of all the forces in Indonesia and Singapore. The Japanese came into Indonesia, invaded Singapore. The guns there were very ineffective. It was, and he surrendered to the Japanese. It was the worst defeat in British military history. Both these men lost. And yet, when Douglas MacArthur went to go sign, he signed Douglas. And then Percival came up and signed Mac, and then uh, Wainwright came up and signed Arthur. He allowed them to complete his name in the surrender. They had suffered everything, including humiliating defeat at the hands of the Japanese, and now the Japanese were watching them sign their defeat. You know what I love about that? Douglas MacArthur let two losers be part of that glory. And that's what we are to a certain degree, right? We just can't make it on our own. We are adopted children of God. We are, in a sense, in the world's eyes, losers. And yet, at the final defeat, the defeat of Satan and his minions, the return of Jesus Christ, the reestablishing of paradise that we will live in forever and ever and ever, God brings us with us. He is not ashamed of us, no matter how many defeats we've had. Because we're his children. This is worth doing. It's worth walking in a manner worthy of his calling. It's worth embracing goodness. It's worth embracing faith. When Jesus was closing out his high priestly prayer in John 17. On the night that he was betrayed. He said this. The glory which you gave me I have given to them. That they may be one. Just as we are one. And in them you and me. That we have perfected in unity. So that they would. Uh, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire they also whom you've given me be with me where I am. So that you may see my glory which you have given me. For you love me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, although the world has not known you yet, I've known you. And these have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them. And they will make it known so that the love with which you love me may be in them and thy in them. Do you feel the intimacy of that prayer? And he's thinking about his 12 disciples, or 11 at this point in time. He's also thinking about you. He prays for those who come because of their words. Matthew Henry, the great commentator, says this, Christ speaks here as if he did not count his own happiness complete unless he had his elect to share it with him. That's the passion of the God that we serve. How could we not walk worthy in goodness and faithfulness to please him? Father, I do pray that on this Palm Sunday, God, we would still welcome you and sing out hosannas. That we would give you the praise. Much of that crowd on that day 2,000 years ago turned against you and cried out, crucify you. But let us be those who would be willing to die for you. As we welcome you with hosannas and see you in faith knowing that one day we will see you face to face at your glorious return. Help us to walk worthy in Christ's name. Amen.